Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. I probably spend way too much time on social media watching what other professionals do and what kind of results they get. I've followed Nick and Ralitza Hill, a hoof care and vet duo that work throughout the UK and Europe for quite some time, and have seen photos of equine clients of theirs in all kinds of environments and doing all kinds of jobs. I reached out to them to see if they would chat with me about the impact of various environments on hoof health, as well as what factors they think play an important role in keeping horses sound. How did you get started in hoof care? Basically, it was a bit accidental in a way. My own horses were getting messed up and getting lame. And one particular horse we had to have put down because there was no other options that we could see at the point in time. That was over 20 years ago. And I started looking around at other shoeing options, how possibly to go forward. And it eventually, after about two and a half years of uh, then taking up shoeing, doing shoeing, um, found out um, a different way with barefoot. And that was it, it just sort of started the ball rolling and it was, wasn't ever wanting to be a farrier or a trimmer or anything else. I was into teaching, riding and just enjoying horses. Uh, sort of like professional trainer. And ever since I started doing hooves, uh, that took me away from wanting to train because I saw the mess up of the feet and the balance. And that stopped me from wanting to teach people on unbalanced horses with terrible hooves. It was just a, a roll-on situation, really. One thing nudges into another, and you get led down a path. And it was natural hoof care, really, that's uh, been the mainstay over the last uh, 20 years, I think. Wow. Yeah. So, Ralitza, right? Yeah. So, you're a veterinarian, but you do more of a holistic approach, right? And how did you get started with that? So, originally, I studied to be a vet in Bulgaria and because I found it marginally insufficient what we studied about equine medicine in university in Bulgaria I went to Germany and did some practice there in two equine clinics and basically I went through all areas of equine medicine I saw a lot of sick horses because the clinics were constantly full I saw a lot of different cases and one of the two main problems I saw a lot of were colics and laminitis and a lot of them to get put down, maybe 30 to 50% of them, because maybe the ones that actually got to the clinics were already so bad that they couldn't have been helped. But that sort of led me to think that surely if this is the cutting-edge medicine and that's the maximum we can achieve, we can't save all of them, then there must be other ways we can help horses. We can expand in our horizon and include other ways of helping them, making sure that they don't, that we don't actually lose them. And it was actually in Germany that I signed up for a course in equine acupuncture. Just out of interest, I've never heard of acupuncture being used in animals at all. And seeing it on an actual horse and seeing how it works made me think, well, maybe there is something to this. Maybe I need to explore it. But it wasn't later that I actually jumped into it and decided to actually study acupuncture courses and since then I've gradually been moving away from 
conventional medicine and just mainly using acupuncture for my patients. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of your, you know, posts on Facebook and uh, I follow some people that you've worked with and seen really good results in soundness. And so I've been really interested in what you guys do. And obviously, I know that you travel a lot. You've seen horses in different countries and different terrains, different environments, obviously different states of health. So I would love to be able to pick both your brains a little bit on some of the different things you've seen and experiences you've had. And so I guess this is a huge question. And uh, I don't even know if there's one, you know, real answer to it. But what would you say has the biggest influence on hoof health? Well, as you say, it's a, uh, a huge, big topic of what all the things put together. But I think the biggest and most overriding one is movement. But I'd say movement on a, at least a major laterally balanced hoof is a real big one for me. There was a instant, actually, we can say about whenever we travel around, we go to different countries, different places. And this one time, it was a little backcountry road in um, Bulgaria. And uh, it was an old guy in his little cart, and he had this grey horse. And he was trotting up the hill of this horse on this tarmac road. And this horse was sound as a pound. We always look to see if we've got shoes on or not. Some do, some don't. And this one didn't. And it was just motoring on like it had no care in the world. It wasn't the greatest looking, as in body-wise, muscle-wise, everything else. But it was from a poor village. And just, you know, you can tell by the dress of the guy, it wasn't a rich man. And uh, so we, he, he pulled over. So we said, oh, can we have a look at your horse's feet? And he was getting very cagey about it, and he was very apologetic about it, the state of his horse's feet. And we picked them up to look at them. And um, this very sound-looking horse had uh, divergent angles on its toes, quite a little bit long on its toe, but the white lines as tight as a drum. The quality of the hoof was really good. And um, he was, his only words were, I really apologise, I haven't actually got any shoes on. I, I, I'm really sorry, I haven't got any money to put shoes on the horse. And we said, no, we're quite happy that you haven't. And he was he couldn't quite get that idea. But uh, we asked him, well, what do you feed the horse? And his answer was, whatever's affordable, whatever's around. It could be bread, it could be oats, it could be barley, um, anything really. Maize sometimes. Yeah, maize, yeah. Anything that you'd think is completely bad for a horse and give it bad condition, and want thrush or whatever else, but there was no sign of thrush. There's a tight white line. All that was doing that was keeping this horse going was the fact that every single day he'd go from village to village to go and get bits of work or do something. And it's because of the movement that was the only thing, because he didn't know anything else about balancing diets or anything else. So if you can have all the horrible stuff thrown at you, and you can still have a, what is a basically sound horse on hooves that shouldn't be as good as they were. It's quite a, a statement, really. Yeah. You know, I've come to horses where I've talked to the owners beforehand and they told me that they're feeding them, you know, tons of sweet feed and they're, you know, on lush grass. And I expect to, to show up to sore horses or awful feet. And I'm always surprised if I come to a horse that has really nice feet and then I ask the owner, you know, show me their turnout environment. And they're out, you know, 24-7 on 20 acres and they're moving freely in a herd. And 
I think that yeah. I agree. I think movement plays a much bigger role than we even realize. And in a lot of current turnout situations in my area, there's just not either not a lot of land or they're out by themselves or they only go out for a few hours. And I think that does play a, a huge role in what we're seeing in the in the feet. Yeah, obviously isn't the whole story, but for for me, it's probably the biggest and most important one. And obviously a major lateral balance and the diet and everything else really is huge. But I think movement over and above everything else can make you get away with an awful lot that you shouldn't do. Actually, that's what I was going to ask about is you mentioned medial lateral balance. And do you mean landing medial laterally balanced in movement, like dynamic balance? Or what are you referencing there when you say that? Basically, where each time it hits the ground, the major laterally, heel to heel, is equal. So when they're hitting on the ground, you can look at it and they're equal lengths. So you you can look at the foot and it can be distorted, but the heels are equal lengths. So you've got that a major lateral balance. And if as long as you've got that, the horse can generally cope. If you've got a horse with joint issues, where it's going to grow off one side or the other, it just means that you have to keep that maintained. And the more you keep that maintained, the better the rest of the skeletal system is. So, you know, I'll sometimes come to a horse that I see more often than not, the first time I come to a horse, a lot of them are landing really hard laterally. And do you adjust your trim if they're landing imbalanced medialaterally when you see that? Well, I think the first thing to say is it depends on what other issues there are. If it's been like that for a long, long time, then you're not going to make a big change in a trim. It's going to be over time. And you can't just do a trim and stand alone. You need somebody else that's going to look at the whole body as well and see what's going on there and help make the changes. So then the horse can then adjust itself as well. Blitz has got a good story about a horse who trimmed in Bulgaria. Well... One of our clients in Bulgaria, Nick has trained the yard owner to trim their own horses. But this particular one, he was finding difficult, so he called Nick out to trim him. And it was particularly embarrassing for Nick to see that the horse, just after it's been trimmed, go worse than it was before. He went completely lame. It was hopping lame. It was terrible. I didn't know where to look. (laughs) So they were particularly perplexed at that horse going worse after the trim. Um, especially because they both do the same thing, and that shouldn't really happen. So what Nick asked me to do was go over that horse and just see if there's anything wrong with him. So I went over his body, did some stretches, and we walked him off again. Except he didn't just walk off. He went kicking, bucking, running, galloping around. Absolutely sound as a pound. Basically, you can't just balance the feet without helping balance the rest of the body. You know, it's another standalone thing. So whenever you think you're really good, well, guess what? Sometimes you might not just be there all by yourself, you know? And so do you suggest body work usually, or do you just have the owners do stretches themselves? That very much depends on what I find. Sometimes we work together. If I'm called out to do acupuncture on a horse, particularly if he has a lameness issue, I always get Nick to look at the feet as well. If they're out of balance, we always correct them. And I do the acupuncture, and sometimes I would suggest that they either get a massage therapist, a chiropractor, an osteopath, or some sort of other specialist that fits in with whatever I find on that horse. And sometimes if I believe that the issue's 
not within my competence, I would even get them to get the vet out first to evaluate it and see what needs to be done conventionally before I even move in. It very much depends on the case. Yeah. Yeah. And do you, do you have horses that confirmationally can't land mediolaterally balanced or do you find that once they're, once they've got the right balance in their body and comfort level in their feet, they will land balanced? There's very few. There's a, like a handful of cases, I think, over the last 20 years where there's actually been where they can't actually land properly mediolaterally because the joints are fused and calcified. And so then you're not going to be able to change that. And you then it's really hard sometimes to come across them and go, okay, this is one of them cases. It's more of a rarity than anything else. But the mediolateral, even on horses that grow off on one side or the other, can still be maintained and usually get the horse owner involved and say, okay, just once a week, just keep this here so it stay, helps stay and maintain that balance in conjunction with having the body worker or acupuncture or other modalities. But you want to do it slowly and gradually. Whenever you force something, there will always be a knock-on effect. That's the one thing I have learned. The whole thing, isn't it, at the end of the day, is having a horse that's comfortable. Yeah. If it's not comfortable, it's not going to move. It's not going to function. Look at why, why it's not moving correctly. Yeah. And then solve that problem. Then you can move on. You know, I think... Something that I hear a lot, especially in my area, which I assume is is a similar climate to um, Scotland, although I don't know, are you in Bulgaria now or Scotland? We're in Bulgaria at the moment. We're till 6th of March. I go back to the UK. Oh, nice. So, so I, something I hear, which I don't know if you hear this too, but, uh, you know, other some vets in the area, farriers, horse owners will say like, oh, because of our climate, because it's so wet, horses just have hoof issues. <laughs> and I know that's yeah. similar to the UK, or I think we have somewhat similar climates. If anything, I think the UK gets more rain than we do. But, you know, going on that same kind of idea, do you notice any differences in feet that are living in really wet environments versus the more desert type environments that you visited? And how much does that play a role in hoof health? Well, I would turn around and say the biggest difference is humanization of the horse in a given climate. We've done horses, say, in Israel. In the very north of Israel, it's very wet, lush grass around and rocks, and seen some semi-feral horses up there that run around that aren't really managed at all. And uh, their feet are really good, rock solid, go over every stone you can, I mean, gallop over it, sharp rocks. And then in the desert of Israel, you've got horses hooves are very well worn, very done. Now, one big thing about it is there's no chemicals, no fertilizers, there's no rich feeds given. Sometimes um, I've known them feed peanut hay in um, the desert areas when they got desperate for forage. But in the main, it's, it's been fairly simple diet. In Bulgaria, a lot of the time we see, and in Africa, there's fairly simplified diets. There's a lot of things that are wrong in all these different countries where you would say, well, some of these things could be more toxic. There's imbalance in levels of protein, carbohydrates, uh, minerals, vitamins, all the rest of it. But in general, it isn't this big sweetie shop we have in the whole Western society where everyone has to give something like go faster, 
uh, food, go slower food, go shinier coat food, go this food, go that food. The animals are treated like pets generally, they're not worked. And that is affects the metabolism, affects the immune system. There's a whole lot more horses seem to be prone to illnesses that they shouldn't be if they're fit, strong and healthy. So environment can play a part in it, as in if you're studying water all the time, I mean, horses aren't ducks, so the feet are going to get wetter and stay wet and soggy. And but also then the grasses, it just takes a little flush of grass, a bit of fertilizer, a little bit of chemical, and it sends the system haywire. So any small change influences how strong that horse is. And therefore, you'll see that come out in the hooves. If you feed a desert horse a lot of rubbish all the time, you can probably damage the horse's hoof and body as quick as quickly as you can in a wet climate. In a dry climate, I think it is a little bit more healthy than a completely wet one all the time. And I think and my advice is always try and find at least four hours a day where the horse can actually dry its feet off. And do you see more foot soreness in wet environments? Well, I've seen some in the highlands of Scotland. It's more sort of peaty soil where the horses are running around and foraging off the hills and very wet uh, on the west coast. And um, they run over rocks and everything. And the ones I've seen, this is a while back, but they, they can cope with just about anything you throw at them. But as soon as you take them and move them to the east coast where the grass is a bit lusher and it's still wet, feet go to pot. So I think the diet and the movement are the biggest influences in that. And the constant wet does mean that the foot is softer. It's like putting your hand in a bucket of water. Eventually it'll soften and then you might get diseases as well. You know, it's not meant to be continually wet. Right. And say it basically it's movement, 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 plus more movement. And not only though, if the caveat there is if the horse is comfortable, if it's in pain, then it's stressed. And if you have something that's moving that's stressed, you're going to end up with a very ill horse on balance. Yeah, I always tell owners that it's not, you know, and I stole this line from Nick Barker, it's not me, but. It's not movement that's bad. It's improper movement that's bad. So if horses are compensating yeah. and, you know, moving improperly, yeah. they're going to end up injuring themselves or laying. Yeah, I would, say, I would say that's very, very much the case. You know, if you take feral groups of horses uh, in several different places around the world, I've seen them, where they, they run around and they move around as herds, do the species-specific behavioral movements, do all gates and... They, they don't miss a beat because that's what they've been brought up with, how they're held and done. As soon as you get horses that are confined or over-pampered and they're, they're toys, they're not work animals, they are not got a purpose not doing something. I'm not saying that you don't have to ride them. You don't have to ride. You can do other things with them. But once you start down the thing of, oh, it feels a little bit like this, or... Little Jimmy needs a little bit of ice cake and tea cake and a little bit of marmalade or whatever to make them happier. Then it softens them. The horses are meant to be fit and strong. Athletes, 
even even these big ones are supposed to be athletic, and people have treated them like the um, sponge puddings. Yeah, and I, I I've definitely seen that too. I think the sounder horses that I see are ones that are left out more like livestock instead of um, cooped up. So you know, along the same lines of this discussion. Uh, I, you know, I obviously trim primarily in a damp, wet environment. And so I have a way that I trim and I don't know that it would work in a dry environment. So I didn't know if you approach feet differently depending on the climate um, or if you adjust your trimming at all. Do you? My principles I learned were along the lines of Jamie Jackson, uh, natural hoof care. And also looked into horses themselves and go and see how they are. There's not any one of us on the planet that's going to get it right all the time, but we try our best. Best thing to do is, if in doubt, stay conservative. If that horse, it looks like the foot's going to take a little bit more, I'd say just wait one more trim and then try it. You know, give the horse time and chance to get better. If the horse is being in shoes, let's say, and the hooves are really distorted and they're weak, they're going to take a lot of recovering. And what we can't see on the inside, you can't even see with x-rays, you can't see the fine um, blood vessels, or the soft tissues that might have a little bit of damage here and there. It's really hard to tell. And all you can do is go on how that horse is feeling. So a horse should be able to run around over all surfaces with ease that any drugs or anything to it so stay conservative and just go gradually 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 there's a big rush at the moment i see where people have said oh it's got to be this specific sort of shape this ideal hoof or the perfect hoof and this is where it will be to be balanced yeah they're probably right that that balanced looking hoof short in the heel, short in the toe, nice and rounded everywhere. That is quite a good thing to have. You look in all animals, all ungulates that are wild or feral, and you'll see the same thing. But the problem is, if we try and force that onto a hoof, we then have to put boots on, we have to put pads on, we have to do this and that to it to try and get it to work. Why not just go a little bit slower, take your time, Forget what it looks like. Go and look at the trees, look at the sky, look at everything else, but don't look at the bloody feet. Mm. Yeah? And then you might actually stand a chance of getting that horse to heal. And the big rush and pressure from horse owners, vets, farriers, and everyone on the internet is to get this perfection. The perfection is day by day, every time that hoof is responding to all the stimulus around it, its environment and diet and everything, that's what you've got to do is be patient. Yeah. Hard. Right. Yeah, definitely. I know we're, we're so used to instant gratification, I think, nowadays, just getting things what we want when we want it. And obviously with horses, patience is, is the big key, I think, in a lot of these cases. Yeah. Have there been any cases that you came to that have really surprised you and how they've been able to heal or become sound? Oh, there's one that stands, I've got several of them where there have been sort of navicular cases, laminitic cases, and you think, oh, well, you know, they do really well because the owners listen to what you say and do exactly what you do, and you think, well, that's just brilliant because everything has fallen into place as it should do, 
and you can see the progress and everything is, you know, online, on track. Uh, but there was this one case years ago, and I just stopped shooting uh, about a year, I think it was, and they'd had several different farriers, specialists, and really good farriers, uh, at it with all sorts of shoes and pads and wedges and you name it. And they'd x-rayed it and done everything. Anyway, had high ring on, low ring on, pedalostitis, navicular, had laminitis, thin soles, it actually had convex soles, uh, the walls were thin, and the diet wasn't great, and she wasn't going to change that, because she said, look, it's an old mare, uh, it was only 15, I think, so it's not that old, and she said, if you take this barefoot and see how this one goes, and then we'll give you some more to do, and I thought, gee, thanks. So anyway, I took the shoes off. And that's basically all I could do. And I said, look, you've got an area here that's fairly soft. It's dry, but it's soft. Just keep it in here so it can wander in and out as it's stable. And then we'll take it week by week and see how we go and give you more work to do as we go along. And uh, within a week, she'd phone us up and say, this horse is really sound. Wow. And I'm thinking, I've got the right person here. <laughs> and... Yeah, it was. It was the same horse. And within four weeks, this horse is walking over rocks and stones and she was going to start riding it. And I was, I had to go back and see it. And sure enough, the whole hoof had changed. And of course, back then, as I know, I'm terrible at taking photographs or pictures of things. I should have done lots of them, really. But that one just always sticks in the memory of you can never turn around and say, nothing this won't heal or that won't heal things that have their own way of doing and all you can do is release it and let it go that's so interesting i think for me it's noticing about wear patterns and seeing because with wear patterns you can see how a horse wants to move left right straight or what it doesn't want to do and you can see it instantaneously and you can turn around and tell the owner exactly how that horse wants to move or if it's stiff to the one side or the other and all you do is you allow the patterns that are there and then you, you help with the one, bits that the horse isn't wearing. A bit like an old pair of shoes or a new pair of shoes, you get them. And then you walk in them and run in them and everything else. And after a while, they start wearing at one point in the heel and at another point in the toe. And after a while, it unbalances your body because you're going too far over in that same direction. So then you have to throw them away and get a new pair of shoes or resole the other ones depending if you've got any money or not, you know, or a new pair of tyres. You're just basically helping the whole horse balance itself. And the more you get the owners to participate and get the horse moving, then the easier it is. So obviously we talked a lot about how movement can really affect feet. And so one of my big questions is, have you, do you have clients, first of all, that have horses that are primarily stall kept and if you do have you been able to improve those feet the answer to that is you can improve anything there's a an example of this um uh, a white mare in bulgaria and one of our clients the owners want the horse to kept in a stable and also can go on the track during the day they've got a track system one of the first track systems in bulgaria a, a commercial one and they wouldn't all the horses to be on the track but the owners have a different idea and they're the ones paying the bills so anyway this mare has thrush uh, had thrush in its feet all four feet 
had bits of white line separation and they were there clearing it, cleaning it, putting all sorts, anything you can imagine to try and get on top of the thrush and the white line and everything else. The diet was mainly just hay and a handful of oats. And the owner said, look, we're doing all we can do. We can't turn the, uh, the owner of the stables. We can't turn it out fully because the owners won't let us because that's what would be best. And the, and the movement on the track had obviously helped the horse, but it just wasn't enough. So then Relixa said, well, just take out that handful of oats. That's all I'm asking you to do, just take out the handful of But the, the owner wants to the oats and just take it out for six weeks and let's see. So took the oats out. Guess what happened? All the thrush cleared up. All of the white line tightened. Horse was sound. Wow. You know, a really simple thing like that. This horse, is, the other horse all had a handful of oats and that was fine. Their systems were coping with it. They were out and about and moving. This horse wasn't, it was stagnating and then doing little bits of movement. The, they weren't riding it enough, weren't doing anything else enough with it. So that small handful made a huge difference to that horse. Each horse is so sensitive and the more you stable it, less movement the more you stagnate them stagnate the blood stagnate the wind the other thing is you've got the the smell of the stables the urine and poo and everything else it's not pleasant smells i wouldn't want to live in a toilet but people think the horses are happy in a toilet you know you then have to say well if you want your horse to be a lot better a lot healthier then you're going to have to do an awful lot of cleaning i mean far more meticulous than you ever normally are you're going to have to be extremely meticulous about what you feed it and why you're feeding it. Don't have them overweight because that's cripples horses. And get them moving. Spend your time instead of grooming, uh, washing their rugs or whatever else. Get them out and move. And just get out and move. That's the, you know what's needed, in my opinion. And that's what brings improvement to horses that are stabled. You know, it can be done, but it's lots of hard work time spent by the owner doing that yeah in my area i don't know if you see this where you are but we have some you know show barns that will have horses inside for 23 hours a day like they only go out for an hour in the small little paddock and i have yeah. the hardest time you know a lot of those feet are contracted or really thrushy or they just look like their atrophied feet because they're not used, you know. Yeah, there, there was a reminds me of a little young filly, a year old, had white line separation, had thrush, a yearling, and it's because they had it stabled all the time. And it's just like it's absolutely ludicrous. And anybody that does that, really, you can deem them as being cruel. Now, you if you're going to do that, then you're going to have to negate that stagnation by working harder, getting them out and moving, because the horses are not built for that. They're supposed to be out and moving. Their lungs are supposed to move. Without movement, the lungs don't work properly. The blood doesn't go around properly. You know, the nerve system doesn't work properly. They, they, they don't get enough input. The stomach, it, it, it can't digest and it gets more acidic. Stagnation brings acidity, brings increase of weight and slowing of the metabolism. It messes with it. So to me, it's like, you know, 
it needs to change, but all the time it can't change because of yard owners not wanting the fields to be muddied or messed up or whatever. Then it's up to them to change the way they manage their stables. Start putting dry areas out there. Start thinking about the horse rather than the property. I know that's easier said than done sometimes, but it's got to be for the horse. If you're going to take on the responsibility of having horses stabled or looking after them, not stabled, but just looking after them, then they have to have an appropriate environment. Zoos have been forced 50, 60 years ago to produce environments for each different species that would at least give them something towards a proper life, not a human or humanistic idea of it. Yeah, I'm fairly strong-minded about that one, I think. Yeah, but it's hard. You know, like I think owners will get attached to a certain place that they're they're keeping their horse and yeah i mean it's, it's never easy you know if you if your choice is 10 stables and none of them have any turnout like in say ayrshire is a good example in scotland very wet and the ground goes to mush so that makes it extremely difficult um for people to change and try and find somewhere you know uh, i'm not going to say it's easy it's it's something that it needs to be thought through by people with the welfare of the horses in mind. Yeah, and I think those are you know my main big questions. And I think the the one last question I have for both of you is: Do you? And this is a broad question, so it can be kind of in relation to anything. But do you have any advice for horse owners or hoof care professionals as they're working on you know some difficult lameness cases? I'll let you go first. Well, I think hoof care professionals should be a bit more open-minded about using other professionals alongside them and working with other professionals. And I'm not talking only about vets, but obviously if, if there's a lameness, there needs to be a vet involved. But massage therapists, physios, osteopaths, chiropractors, any sort of body worker might be able to improve things. And I see a lot of time on Facebook, different professionals say that hoof care is extremely important and that sometimes they go as far as to say that they can correct certain pathologies simply by relying on hoof care or trimming in a specific way. And I find that a bit, a bit extreme, so to speak. Certain medical conditions I don't think can be completely cured by trimming alone or by hoof care alone. And I think involving other professionals in the process is extremely important. Yeah. Um, what would I advise? Um, take up another sport. Do something else. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> no, um, uh, I would turn around and say, look, enjoy what you do. That's the most important thing. Try and help where you can. Be patient. If somebody pushes you and say they want to see this done to your horse or what that done to your horse, Turn around and say, well, okay, why? Explain to me why. What are you looking for? Explain to me why you want to feed this or you want to feed that. Try and get everyone to talk to each other. And it's really difficult because some people think I have very fixed views on things. I I maybe do. But I'll still talk to people. I'll still listen to what they're saying. Um, Will I always agree with them? Probably not. But take your time. Take the time it takes for the horse to get better, to heal, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's so great. I mean, I, you know, on this hoof care journey of mine, I've, I've tried to talk to and shadow and learn from as many people as possible. And even if I don't fully agree with everything they do, I think that the more open-minded we are, the more we can, you know, learn from each other, even if we don't end up doing all the same approach. So I think yeah, I mean, there's no, no one person is going to get it right because we've got two different species. We've got equus and we've got human. Equus actually has more chance of getting things right than humans. <laughs> humans really mess things up all the time. Yeah. They're, they're brilliant. You know, ignore the humans and watch the horse. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been really fun. Yeah, it, is, it was actually. I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you for giving us the opportunity. Of course. What well, have yeah. a good rest of your night, and thank you again so much, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Yeah, Anytime. All right. All right, then. Bye. Take care. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof-obsessed than the average person, and chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too, so we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.